Thanks so much for listening to Pastor Josh from Redemption Church. If you're ever in the Johannesburg area, come and visit us. We would love to host you. For all of our resource and content, check out our website at www.redemptionchurch.co.za. All of our podcasts are available for free. Be blessed as you listen to this message. Those of you that are here today for the first time, it's my prayer that you hear about Jesus in such a way that He just blows you away with His goodness and His love. It breaks my heart that, that churches can make Easter their one-time shot at people who come to church or maybe don't go to church or have been scared of church or have had bad experiences in church. We can make it our one-time shot at letting you know that you need to sort your life out. And the unfortunate thing is today, we're going to learn that the Scripture around the cross is not about you deciding to fix your life. Because you can't decide to change. You can't decide today, well, I'm going to use this time. Like some people would preach Jesus has suffered. Jesus has gone through all this for you. Jesus has done this all for you. Now, with that understanding, I hope you feel the guilt and shame that you haven't done enough and I can provoke you to go and do something. That's not what Easter's about. That's actually not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about this. You do not have to try and change anything. There is no amount of work or effort you can put into your Christianity to try and fix yourself. Christianity is not defined by what you do. It is defined by what you believe. The Bible says, if you would just believe in my radical love for you, in what I have done for you, wow, you're going to catch a revelation of salvation. And my prayer is this morning, if you're in church here and you're like, listen, I have been to some wacky things. I've been to a whole bunch of stuff. And I know all you pastors, you're all this and you're all that. And the church is about money. I hope you're here today. The church has got nothing to do with that stuff. It is about a God who is alive, who came down from heaven to die in your place, not to condemn you but to bring about an opportunity for you to receive redemption as a gift through His sacrifice and His suffering. And today in this place, I'm here to tell you the gospel is not, the Greek word gospel is not about news that kind of makes sense. In other words, it's not like, listen, if you put in enough effort, enough time and enough sacrifice, God will recognize you and love you. No, gospel itself means too good to be true news. If you at some point in the service today go, this is, this, is, this is too good to be true, it means I am preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, can we jump really quickly into the passage of Scripture that is quoted in churches around the world, right? And we're going to see today that grace is not the same as sin in its power. Grace is the righteousness given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and His perfect, obedient life, taking our place, doing what we could never do, gives us grace, which is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor with God. That is what grace is. It is not on equal footing with sin. It is not that grace and sin are yin and yang and they're at a warfare where we hope at the end of the day, we get to heaven. We hope that at the end of a long life of suffering and pain and extra hard serving and extra hard prayer, somehow when our time comes, His grace was greater than our sin. No, the Bible does not describe it as an equal deal. The Bible describes grace in Scripture far more powerful. It doesn't even put them on the same page. The Bible recognizes that through Adam we sin and we fall. And because the law came in, it showed us that we as humanity could never be righteous in our own work. 
And yes, man, or should I say man representing collective humanity says we have fallen. But what we don't understand is there was an indebtedness based on sin between humanity and God that said humanity is far from God based on their fallen nature. But that indebtedness was not equally paid for. The Bible declares that Christ's death at the cross was an overpayment. In other words, you owed Standard Bank, and they're getting a punt. I don't know why today, but okay, Standard Bank's getting a punt. Okay, um, Steve, Steve will get upset with me, um, whatever the F&B's marketing thing is. But anyways, okay, so say you owe a bank a million rand. Somebody here today, thank you, Lord, I'm speaking prophetically, is worth a couple of billion rand, and they just like you. They decide to find out what do you owe Standard Bank. So you owe Standard Bank a million rand. It's a lot of money. It's not a small amount of money. And based on what needs to get paid for this amount, you have a contract with Standard Bank. And you actually have to pay back every single month based on interest and amount until the debt is paid. Now imagine this person goes to Standard Bank and decides to put a hundred million rand in that account. Then comes to you and says to you, because I like you, because I love you, I'm putting a hundred million rand in that account. I've done it. Would you be concerned about a person's mental ability to process information logically if they continued then to service that debt? Would you not worry about someone who says, no, but I owed a million, I've got to keep paying 11,468 rand every month? No, the natural response is to check the account statement and if the balance shows 100 million rand, you go into Standard Bank Monday morning. Well, now it's a public holiday, so it'll be Tuesday morning. You'd probably be standing out in front of it at 5 a.m., waiting for it to open, and you would then make a withdrawal of 99 million rand. You would go, you owe me money. But, but what if the teller says, but did you pay it? No, I did not. I don't care. It states according to the deposit that has been made. It's irrelevant who's made the deposit. It's in my name, and it's an account that was accredited to. It was my debtedness, but that account has received a deposit of 99 million. Because of that fact... I have now been not just declared square, I have been declared rich. Correct? So why do we preach in such a way that people need to leave a service with the mindset that even though God has declared you righteous by His work and His doing and declared your sin to be no more, we preach in such a way that we say, but when you go out there, keep making your deposit. So we're going to unpack this today because we need to realize it's not about man's opinion of right and wrong. It's about Scripture's opinion of right and wrong that will lead us to live an overcoming life and allow us to reign in this life. So first and foremost, let's go to this passage of Scripture. John chapter 3, verses 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. First, we need to understand God's love was not about who deserved it. It did not state God so loved those who appeared good people. God so loved the Man United fans. I, I'm an avid Man United fan. Hard to defend a Red Devil logo, but hey. It is what it is. A friend of mine's mom growing up in the 80s in the charismatic church um, used to tipix out the red devil on his shirt. Um, but that's okay. Anyways, so I don't know why I'm going there. All right, so God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So He loved the world, the whole world, everybody in the world, the messes, as well as those who thought they were perfect. And because of this love, He decided to give, not to demand. God's love for us does not provoke Him to put a list of demands on us. When God decides to show love, He does so by giving His greatest possession, His only begotten Son. And the purpose behind this gift is that so whoever prays a lot, whoever attends church more than the rest, 
Whoever gives more financially, whoever learns scripture off by heart. No, the Bible qualifies this. The purpose for this great gift is so that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not about what you do. It's about what do you believe? Do you believe today that Jesus was given out of God's love for you? Now, as we move on, I wish pastors would read the next verse because it qualifies the bigger picture. The bigger picture behind this is that why would God give His Son? It says, because God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to condemn us. The gospel is not a gospel of condemnation, but that something could change. There could be a transition. Something could move in the spiritual atmosphere. And what needed to move? The world needed to move from being condemned to being saved. It's a different spirit. It's a different ground. It's a different place to be standing. It's a different position to be seen by God in. To move from condemnation that through Jesus, we might be saved. Who is we? Those who study Scripture more than the rest? No. Those who believe Jesus was sent out of God's love for them. So in this understanding, we start to say to ourselves, but this, this sounds, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm in church today. I haven't been in church for a while. Fine, okay. But I'm hearing something a little different because from my understanding, right, we have these things called the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments were given to me uh, so that I know what God wants me to do. Well, I, I, unfortunately this morning, I have to say to you that that's not the correct understanding of the Ten Commandments. If anybody says with any microphone, with a lot of people in a crowd or a small amount of people in a crowd, that the Ten Commandments were given so that you and I could learn how God wants us to live, we unfortunately are giving an opinion that is not based on Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible does it declare that Ten Commandments are given to produce a good, holy person. In fact, we see the Scripture talk about the Ten Commandments in a different way. Am I saying today that the Ten Commandments are not holy? Absolutely not. The Ten Commandments were given to represent what a righteous man would need to do all the days of his life in order for him to be declared righteous. However, they were not given to humanity to help us live righteously because we see based on Scripture, first in Scripture, that the Bible declares when the Ten Commandments were given, we, especially us, the people who it was given to, sinned more. In fact, the children of Israel started doing sins they had yet to do after the Ten Commandments were given. Because what the Ten Commandments do is they say to us, if you were to earn your righteousness, if you were to earn your way back to heaven, this is how God is and this is how you would need to be. The unfortunate thing is, based on Adam, we have all been declared sinners. And so in our birth into this world, it is pronounced upon us that in Adam we are sinners. Are you crazy, Pastor? What are you talking about? I mean, I thought the Ten Commandments were like, let's stick it up on a wall and let's try and make them happen. Well, let's evaluate the Ten Commandments truthfully. Because when Jesus walked the earth, he was confronted with a problem. 
And that problem was not disease because he healed it. That problem wasn't death because he raised people from it. By the way, just to let you know, if you're here in church today, Christianity, based on the Word of God, being the Holy Bible, is not based on one person's revelation, not based on one person's account of an angel, not based on one person's book. It is a multiple collection of stories that happened, actual historical accounts spanning thousands of years, languages, generations, cultures, and creeds, and yet it is the most accurate account of the history of humanity that exists today. It is not only the most accurate, it has a thread in it that is supernaturally there. In fact, there are over 380 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, and he fulfills them in the chronological account of his life based on hundreds of witnesses. He fulfills them in chronological order. Then he dies with thousands of eyeballs on him and is raised again and walks around being witnessed by hundreds of people. This is an account that is the most documented account on earth. And the funniest thing is as long as science is around, the longer they investigate science, the more it points to the truth that exists in this. It's the most unbelievable thing. But Jesus had a problem because on earth, his problem wasn't people's needs. You never found him going, what do I do about this person? Oh, they have leprosy. Oh, they're a sinner. They're a woman with five partners that we know about. They've got major problems. He was never, ever perplexed or challenged based on need. No, when he had a problem was when Pharisees would come and reject him outright. Why did the Pharisees reject Jesus? Because Jesus's message was, you need me for salvation. And the Pharisees were doing what they thought was obeying the law. And based on their understanding, they believed based on their obedience of the law, they were gonna get to heaven and be declared righteous. Why do I need some guy declaring he's the son of God saying I need to receive him? I need to accept him as the Messiah in order for my salvation. I'm already earning my salvation. In fact, I'm doing pretty good at it. And his response to them based on that attitude was very condemning because when you rely on your works, God just shows you how bankrupt you are in your own works. So what happens is they say to him, we keep the law. We keep the Ten Commandments. Scripture actually says, well, let's unpack this a little. Actually, if you've thought it, you've done it. If you've thought it, you've done it. Now that just makes it a little bit harder. Because we have a problem in this place this morning. Because the guy with the microphone who has an apparent title called pastor, has murdered, committed adultery, lied, stolen, been greedy, fearful, probably just this week. If you've thought it, you've done it. Jesus also says something quite funny. He says, Right? If you've done it with your eyes and responded with your hand, you're guilty. Interesting that he's talking to a bunch of men around sexual sin. Just leaving that there. Every man in the room caught. Every man in the room guilty. And he actually says, well, if you're really that serious about not sinning, take out your eye. Cut off your arm. Every man in this place today, if that was the, re the reality of trying to break lust, we'd all be blind and without hands. I mean, let's get real. No wonder they wanted to stone him because he could see right to it. Then there is actually scripture that says, if you've done one, if you've broken one, you've broken them all. On the way to church this morning, the roads were quiet. Not too many people on there. And so driving to church, 
on the highway, I saw that I could move into another lane and uh, no one was around, so I could quite easily just move. And those of you who have a wife who's the best driver in the world, like mine is, would know that when you drive, they tend to correct you. So as I changed lanes, I was informed that I never indicated. Did I put my family in danger? Technically, no. No one else was on the road. Was I traveling the speed limit? I think so. But if there was a traffic cop behind me and he put on his sirens and he pulled us over and as he pulled us over, the SWAT team of South Africa moved in on us. I had a helicopter above us, sirens and lights, machine guns and armored vehicles and tanks moved in and screaming at the top of their lungs over and over was get out, get on your face, get down on the ground, put your hands behind your back. And as they were arresting me for changing lanes, what was pronounced over me was that I am a mass murderer, pedophile, thief, everything you could imagine, every law of the land I've broken. Would you sit and say that is a fair legal system to be under for our justification? Would anybody in that moment say, Good to live in South Africa. At least the law is fair. I changed lanes without indicating, and now I will be put in, in prison for my life because I'm a pedophile, mass murdering scumbag. Is that a fair system? What is the essence of the heartbeat behind that system? That everybody's guilty of everything. That's what it's about. So let's understand this because. If that's what existed, well, that's an unfair system. And if God loves me, like why would God allow that to be the system? Well, you see, God was loving the nation of Israel already. They were in captivity and they were released after they partook of a lamb. They, Moses told him, listen, if you will just shut yourselves up in your house, get a lamb without blemish, kill it, paint its blood on your doorpost, which we know today, if you stood on the outside of a door, that would have been a blood cross, the way it was instructed. And if all you do is eat of this lamb, the very next day, we know according to the historical account, let me tell you something that's so cool. I was in the Egypt, in, in the museum in Cairo, and um, they had these massive marble tablets that are out in the hallways in the, in the, in the museum. And um, they are actually written in, I think it's hieroglyphics or something, right? And what it is, is each pharaoh had a, a, a history person accounting what took place. So I was looking at this one massive piece of, of marble stone, and, and it says here, this is the Ramesses that was the pharaoh, and it actually has an an a non-Jewish, non-believing account of the plagues during his life. This happened, that happened, this happened, that happened, this happened, that happened, and they were the, the, the slaves were released. It even accounts of the loss, the massive loss over the amazing storm in the sea by somebody else. Not by someone trying to, let's, let's, let's try and push this, 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 this miraculous weird story of a sea swallowing up. But what's interesting about this is when they partook of the lamb the very next day and painted its blood on their doorpost, when they just did that, they didn't fight any battles. But yet they were released. And not only were they released to be free from slavery, Pharaoh actually gave them the 400 years worth of slavery in diamonds and gold plus interest. So he releases them. What's interesting is this account of their story shows us two things. In this whole journey, they get to the sea and they see they can't go anywhere and they see Pharaoh sending an army to kill them. And they don't go, our God who's delivered us already will deliver us again. No, they don't say that. They go, right, Moses, thanks. Now we're going to die out here like dogs? Well, it's better to be a slave and live a bit longer than be murdered here by the sea. Wow, that's full of faith in this place, right? That's like, wow, that just speaks of a faith in God. Amen. Hey? No, they complain. God instructs Moses to stand still 
at the ocean side. And it says in our English Bible, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. And then it instructs him to put the rod in the ocean and it parts the sea. It parts the, the sea in front of them. You know what's interesting about that? The Hebrew actually doesn't say, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. The Hebrew actually says, stop and look to Yahweh. Stand and look at Jesus. And after that is an instruction that parts the sea. They walk through the sea, probably murmuring, oh, this is going to collapse any minute. What are we doing? This is crazy. But they get to the other side. And as they get to the other side, it swallows up the entire army sent to kill them. Then they get thirsty. Don't go, thank you, God. Wow, you're going to provide water for us because you've already done all this. No, Moses, are we going to die and our thirst? And what happens? We get water from a rock. We see how the whole time they are murmuring and their murmuring is provoking God's provision. Yet, they eventually get to a place where they say, we want to be righteous based on our works. We want God's blessing based on our goodness. And God has to go, you've missed the whole thing of what's been going on. You've been provided for, protected for, blessed. This whole time because of my love for you. Not because of your love for me, but because I care for you. And the second that the Ten Commandments are given, you know what's interesting? This entire time they had gold and gems and diamonds and they hadn't done anything with it. They just possessed it. And the second the Ten Commandments are given and the first commandment is worship no other God. What's the first thing they do? Build an idol, another God to worship. Did the law produce good living? No, it just showed them the depravity of their nature. Without the goodness of God, they deserve nothing. And when they commit the same unbelief, which is murmur and complain, which means God, you're not really here, you're not really providing. The second they murmur after the law is given, they die. No one dies before the law is given. So let's unpack this in Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Paul is describing to us why we have the law, what its purpose is, and why Jesus came and what His purpose is and what He has done. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, everybody sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So sin existed, but it was not imputed until the Ten Commandments were given. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Much more the grace of God. Where there was offense, where there was the law given, offense took place, offense already existed, and therefore we were prescribed death. We were condemned. But much more the grace of God. And it is described not as something that is earned, not as something that is prayed in through hours and hours of prayer, not something that is attained through learning the Bible word for word, it is only attained by receiving a gift through Jesus Christ. Never forget, grace does not exist outside of Jesus. It's where people get it mixed up. Grace is not about you. It's about Him. It's not about you. It's about Him. What you get because of His sacrifice and suffering. Then it goes on to say to us, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in 
condemnation. But the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. There has been a transition from one place to another, from one mountain to another. We have to understand that we are not positioned in condemnation anymore, but in justification. For if by one, if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive an abundance of consequence, abundance of teaching about right and wrong, No, those who receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, not the working for righteousness, but the gift of righteousness will reign in this life through the one, Jesus Christ. If we want to see people reigning in life, We need to position them under the gospel that speaks of a much more grace and the gift of righteousness. If you were to leave here today and assess yourself, you need to have a revelation. You cannot earn your righteousness. You do not leave church on a Sunday go into work on a Monday, have a bad day, and then in reflection go, wow, today I didn't love everybody like I love myself. Today I wasn't a good Christian. I made some mistakes. Therefore, today I am less righteous. You are not able to earn your righteousness. It has been given to you as a gift through the grace of God by the cross of Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through the one man's offense, judgment came to all men, to all of us. This judgment resulted in all of us being condemned. Even so, through one man's righteous act, his righteous act, the free gift came to all of us, resulting in justification. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. We know in heaven, Adam is going to have more security than the rest of them. Because the Bible actually says that because of Adam's mistake, all of us has been declared sinners. In fact, it declares you're born sinners. You know, you know, like, like, you know, in, in a moment of a child being born, now the big thing is to, or like one of the new things is like to decide on the music you want playing in the room. It's like a beautiful song, right? Technically, according to Scripture, Like we should all have Michael Jackson's I'm bad playing. And when this beautiful child is born, they're bad, they're bad. We know it. We know it. Scripture says that because of Adam's oops, all of us are declared born sinners. Now to be fair to Adam, Eve did ask him to do something whilst she was naked. So as a married man myself, that does allow me to sympathize with Adam. It's kind of hard to say no in that moment. But what was the fall? The fall was when Adam ate of a fruit. Okay, Pastor, explain that to me. Well, the fruit was called the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil came as a serpent in a cunning way. And he says to Adam, if you want to be like God, you would want to know this knowledge. What's so sad is the Bible tells us that God already created Adam and Eve in his likeness. They were already like God. They were in community with God. They were walking with Him. He was talking to them. They had all knowledge, all wisdom. They were doing amazing, miraculous things. They had everything for them. But the devil came with an identity crisis that he put on them that said, you're not like God. You're you're actually not all the way there. Yet God had already declared them like Him. 
This is the same trick of the devil today. We see it in Jesus' life where the devil approaches him whilst he's fasting in the desert and the devil tries to get him to fall into temptation. And the vehicle the devil uses is the devil comes to him and gives him a question of his identity and says to him, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, are you really the son of God? A question of identity. Because if the devil can get Jesus not to identify with himself in covenant, in community, in relationship with God, he knows the rest takes care of itself. The interesting thing about that is we see this again. You know that in scripture, the devil is described as he who walks around like a roaring lion, seeking out whom he could devour. The interesting thing about this is that when, when Jesus is at the cross, it tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who believed he was not the Messiah, were hurling insults out at him. And it says it describes them as roaring lions. So we can identify the spirit behind it. And what they were accusing him of was they were hitting him with sticks saying, come on, son of God, take yourself down off this cross and save yourself. We see the same problem that Paul has in Romans chapter 7, where he identifies himself. This is Paul, a guy who's lived celibate his whole life for the cause of the gospel. A guy who's been crucified in a manner of stoning, killed. And we believe, according to scripture, he could have died and come back to life. And the very people that crucified him for declaring the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, he comes back after being stoned and in the same body goes to the same people again to preach the gospel. This is a guy committed to the cause. He says in Romans 7, Who's going to deliver me from this body, this wretched man that I am? Everything that I want to do, I don't do. Everything I'm not supposed to do, I do. I'm a mess. I'm a failure. I'm nowhere. But he transitions into Romans 8, writing the most miraculous words, which begin with, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he shifts from a hopeless person who, could, who declares himself worthy of, 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 not even worthy of life. Kill me now, God, I'm so unworthy. To someone who says, nothing will separate me from the love of God. If God is for me, who can be against me? Everything that transpires in my life works out for the good. Even when I don't know what to pray, he prays through me, for me. He speaks of a transition from condemnation to salvation through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, this fall is where we have an identity shift where the devil says, it's about you. And what happens when Adam eats this fruit? It says his eyes are opened and he sees himself naked. He sees himself the way he is without the identity as a child of God that was bestowed upon him. Because he partook of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. What is the Ten Commandments? It's the knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. But we need to partake from the tree of the fruit of the, 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 the life of the tree of life that exists. What is the eating of Jesus, of his body? Because that gives us an identity in God that speaks of a transition from condemnation to salvation. So as we read this, we understand that in verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, all were made sinners. So as by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, here's where we get really even more scandalous. Paul's like, let me explain to you something even, even deeper, even more about the cross. Law did not enter that holiness would abound. He says law entered that offense might abound. But don't worry, everybody. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ 
our Lord. He describes sin abounding under a Greek word, pleonatso, pleonatso, which speaks of the fact that it increases. Can I give you a quick idea around this? I go to the beach every so often with our kids. Not the biggest fan of the beach, to be honest with you. Not for the beach sake, for the sand's sake. I'm a northern suburbs guy, and we're not as rough and tough as we tend to look. Although in our lakey, we're getting tattoos um, and doing shadow boxing, okay? Um, we're not as tough as you might think. So northern suburbs people tend to like the beach because we have this illusion that we go to the beach to lie on the sand, not in the sand. And... Uh, my skin is pasty. My wife's is olive. She sees the sun and she goes beautifully brown. I see the sun and I go pink and freckled, okay? But we go to the beach with the illusion that I'm, I'm somehow going to get tanned over a period of time. It never happens. It usually happens on the last day and it's gone the next morning. But in any case, um, on the beach with children, it's a bit of a different experience. It's not like you're on the beach and you're enjoying the beach, you are, first of all, your back's broken from carrying what, what seems to be an entire toy store of rakes and shovels and boards and blow up arm thingies and extra bags with extra clothes and food and fruit from a fridge and cold water because our kids can't drink the sugar stuff on the beach because they need to have natural things to keep them energized. Do you, do you know, does anybody here relate? Any parents in this place that would know? Like, I don't think of the beach as this gracious place of, of just rest and relaxation. I'm already tired by the time we get there. My voice is hoarse from screaming at the kids on the way down saying, you know, don't go there. Come here. Don't run there. Come here. Where's your sandals? Where's your shoes? Why is your hat not here? Stop hitting your brother. Don't go over there. No, you can't have ice cream. We never know where they come from. That guy, it could have been on the dryers for the last six weeks. There's no Woolworths around. I don't trust this. Okay. <laughs> Northern suburbs thinking, okay. Don't drink from the tap. Okay. So here's the thing. We get to the beach. We're on the sand. That's not a great experience for me. And now my children ask me to do something which is really awful. Dad, let's dig a hole. I take the plastic shovel, three shovels in it snaps. And so you're using your hands, your feet, your back is breaking. Do you understand what slave labor kind of looks like? And you dig a hole that's a couple of meters wide and hopefully a couple of meters, deep enough to throw your kid in and just chuck enough sand in so that they're up to their neck and they can't run around. But I don't do that, I'm just kidding. No, I do. But the thing is, it's just a big enough hole for the kid to have fun in, right? But it's, it's never big enough anyway. So you're digging this hole. Your back's broken, 20 minutes have gone. So now water comes into the hole because you never dug it further away because your wife wants to be close enough to the ocean that you're not far enough from it so you can see your kids in it. And what that results in is a tide change happens and you keep moving back every 10 minutes with all the stuff. <laughs> and the hole gets filled with water. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just reminiscing on some suffering here right now. <laughs> never going to the beach again. So... And then every pretty girl that walks by in a little bikini, you happen to be looking in that direction by mistake. And your wife looks at you with that look. She does not believe for a second. You're breaking the law. I promise you, I was just looking in that direction. Anyway, enough about that. Okay, so, play or not so. Sin abounds, it increases. So what happens is every single wave that's big that comes in fills this, this hole with water and the hole gets bigger based on erosion ever so slightly, based on every wave that manages to make it to this hole. And the hole increases. And what I then have to do, because my children don't want there to be water in the hole, although it's kind of illogical that we buy the ocean and the hole's not gonna have water in it, fine. I jump in with a bucket. I start emptying out the water. Okay, now people on the beach don't look at me as if I'm insane and say, why are you trying to empty out that hole with that bucket? Because they understand that based on the rules of physics and time and looking at the size of the vessel and the size of the hole and the amount of the water that after a couple of buckets, maybe 30 or 50, I'm able to remove the water from the hole. 
What I possess is enough over time to basically exhaust it. The hole does increase. It does get better. It does get, I mean, it does get bigger. But, you know, as time goes by, if I am dedicated enough to this task, I'm able to get the water out the hole over a period of time after each and every single time it's filled up. The other thing is this, though. However, if I was able to apply the same logic on the beach to the ocean and go in front of everybody on the beach in the ocean with the same bucket and start standing up to my knees in the waves and taking a bucket and walking out up onto the sand and throwing that bucket of seawater out and coming back down into the ocean, grabbing another bucket of seawater and going back up onto the beach. And someone was to come to say to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just emptying out the ocean. People would distance themselves and their children from me at that moment. (laughs) When Paul describes the grace of God, he actually uses a word that says huperiseo. And this is the actual Greek word from which we derive the word hyper. He actually describes hyper grace. In other words, grace Beyond measure, beyond exhaustion, an inability for us to quantify the grace of God that exists on the earth in the midst of a sinful man. We have a much more unable to quantify hyper grace that exists according to Paul's definition definition in the midst of the context of condemnation in the law through Adam's offense versus salvation in grace through Jesus's obedience. You cannot outsin the grace of God. And Paul says it's this revelation that will lead us to reigning in life. He does not say it's this revelation that will lead to people sinning more in life. He says this is the revelation of reigning in life. Why? Because it restores to us our true identity that we once possessed, but we messed it up. So God decided, I'm going to come and cut covenants. I am going to come and do a work that you have nothing to do with except for bringing your issues. Do you know the only thing we possess as humanity today that we can give God that is not already God's is not our breath because it's already God's. It's not our time, because it's God's. It's not our finances, it's because it's God. It's not our energy. All of the good stuff that we possess on heaven, I mean, on earth, from heaven, it was all given to us by God. The only thing humanity possesses today that is ours, that's yours, that's mine, is our sin. That's all God requires of us. Give me that, and I will give you your identity as a righteous child of God. Based on works, no. Based on religious effort, no. Based on belief. Those that believe. To qualify to be righteous is about, are you prepared to believe he did it for you? That's what qualifies you. Other things happened at the cross that's so amazing. We know that in John chapter 19, verse 31 through 37, it tells us that Jesus was lying there on the cross. And now the time had come where they needed to get this over with because they couldn't have people hanging up past Passover. They needed to die. So what happens is the Roman soldiers come and say, can we break the legs of those hanging on the cross so that they can die? Because with broken legs, they couldn't push themselves up and breathe. But what's interesting is they break the legs of the thief on the left. They break the legs of the thief on the right. But when they come to Christ, they don't break his legs because he's already dead. But that's not why they didn't do it. The reason they didn't do it is because it was prophesied throughout the Bible that not a bone of this Passover lamb was allowed to be broken. As we see in Exodus chapter 12, verses 46, Numbers chapter 9, verses 12, and in Psalm 34, chapter 20, all speaks of the fact that this lamb, that comes to take away the sin of the world. This Passover lamb cannot have a bone that would be broken. Something else that happens in this understanding is then one of the soldiers comes and pierces Jesus' side with a spear and immediately blood and water comes flowing out. 
Do you know to get blood to flow out and water to flow out of a wound, you have to have a medical condition where your heart has ruptured. Jesus died on the cross with a broken heart so that we never have to live again with a broken heart. And with a broken heart, He fulfills something supernatural because until this moment, the work was not finished. Man had yet to be restored to Christ in a righteousness of relationship, in an intimacy. But in this moment, what happens is out flows blood and water, fulfilling prophecy that says out of Adam's side, because we know that Adam was a picture of he who is to come. Out of Adam's side, his bride was birthed. Do you know that? Eve was pulled out of his side. And out of his side, Jesus came up river flowing with blood and water. The two things that represent the new birth church, the blood of Jesus and the washing of the word, fulfilling prophecy that exists in Old Testament and that what is spoken of in the New Testament, that he will wash his bride with his water and he will cleanse us once and for all with his blood. In that moment, that he is declared dead. Verified dead, the church is birthed because the work of restoration has happened. Something else was going on at that time. It was Passover time, which was the picture. It was the celebration. It was the tradition of what took place when the nation of Israel was liberated from slavery by partaking of the lamb, like we spoke about earlier. And so in this time, what's taking place is the final act of the covering of sins for the nation of Israel is the high priest is in the Holy of Holies in the Temple Mount behind the veil and he is cutting covenant, which means he is crucifying, killing, murdering an innocent animal to cover the sins of the nation of Israel. And what he would do is if he was a good high priest, he would go behind this veil. And by the way, the veil is what separated the holiness of God and God's presence where the Ark of the Covenant was from a sinful man. If we look through the Old Testament, whenever a sinful man came into contact with a holy God, because of our sin, what happened to the man was the man or woman died, right? Immediately because it exposes God and His righteousness and us and our sin. And the consequence of sin is death. That's what Scripture says. So the high priest would have to go through a whole cleansing ceremony. He'd have to be a good high priest. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies. They would put bells on his robe. Go check this out. This is real stuff. And a rope around his ankle so that they could hear if he was moving around. Because if he was not cleansed enough to go in, Not so that he could take away the sins, but he would then kill an animal. But if he hadn't done the right thing in his life, he died when he went behind the curtain. And they knew this because the bell stopped ringing. So then they would drag him out by his ankles because if they ran in to get him, they would die too. This happened, by the way. And they'd keep sending him next, next, next. No one wanted to be pastors in those days. I'm just letting you know. This was going on whilst Jesus was dying at the cross. If you go and check chronological, historical accounts of what was happening whilst Jesus is dying on the cross, this whole thing is happening as a picture of what is happening at the cross. And then what the high priest would do is at the moment that he was able to kill the animal on behalf of the sin of the nation of Israel, he would then come out knowing that the sins were covered. And let me tell you a gracious statement. The sins of the nation of Israel were not covered when he declared by blowing the ram's horn over them. It was not covered for the sins of the year that had passed. It was actually covered for the sins of the year to come. Do you understand that means that everybody under that blood, whether they were Hugh Hefner or not, was declared covered of their sins for the year to come. And Paul actually says, if the blood of bulls and goats can do this, how much more the blood of our Lord and Saviour? So in this moment, we know that he did kill the animal. He leaves the veil and Jesus cries out, Matthew, I mean, sorry, John chapter 19, verses 30, Jesus cries out, it is finished. Bows his head. What I love about this is it shows you that he had control over death because people who die, die first, then have a physical disposition of death. So they breathe out, die, and then bow their heads. Bad actors tend to do this a bit overly. 
But anyways, they die, then lose their disposition. Jesus bows his head and positions himself for death and dismisses his spirit because he had control right until the last minute. And when he dismisses his spirit, it is post a declaration that says, it is finished. What is finished? What is finished? The handwriting of the requirements of the law that is against us, Scripture says. That is against us has been finished. Why is it finished? Because it says that if you do all these things, if you fulfill all these commandments, God has to bless you with every kind of blessing, with every kind of favor, with every kind of need. He has to fulfill it because if you've obeyed these 10, which represent all, you are deemed righteous and God has to then bless you. Well, Jesus never sinned. So as the man who walked his whole life, never breaking one, he takes our place who have broken them all, all the time and declares that the requirements of the handwriting of the law that were against us have now been complete because he has taken our place and he has had our sin imputed to him. In other words, the consequence of our sin was put on him. And in that transaction, his righteousness, Scripture says, is imputed to us. The distance, the separation between man and God is no longer. The Bible declares Jesus the author, the giver, and the finisher of our faith. He was part of the God who gave the law. And yet he came down and completed it. Well, you know what happened? This veil that used to separate humanity from God, that protected people who worshiped in the outer courts and in the temple from certain deaths, because if the veil came down and the ark was exposed to a sinful per- to any person besides the high priest who went into covenant at that time, the interesting thing is this veil was a serious thing. It wasn't made of rice paper. It wasn't made of cardboard. It was made of the thickest fabric they could make, inches and inches thick, woven layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. It was so strong that they used to test the veil that they would put up. And the way that they would test it is they would have horses tied to either end, multiple horses, and they would smash them on the backside and have them sprint in opposite directions. And if six or seven horses could run on either side in the opposite direction and it could hold up, they would then consider using that as a veil. They were serious about this because it was the difference between life and death. Whilst this high priest at the time of Jesus declaring it is finished, giving up his spirit. Scripture and hundreds of witnesses tell us in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and rocks were split. You know what? When you want to tear a piece of paper that you're holding, you tear it from top to bottom. Who tore that veil? God did. Because it is finished. How do I know it's finished? Because the Bible says that no longer does God reside in the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy of Holies, but now because we have been washed once and for all, made pure, cleansed of all our sins, past and present, in the blood of Jesus Christ, that this God who was impossible to reach because of His holiness and my sin, this God now resides in us and we are declared the temple of God. It would kill us if we were not cleansed in the blood of Christ. This veil was not needed anymore. And what's so beautiful is at the time that this high priest left the Holy of Holies and went outside the temple and went onto the shofar, which is a fancy word for ram's horn. And we know that he was declared our, we see this picture with, 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 with um, Isaac, 
where he was saved by the provision of a ram. We know that Jesus saves us as he is our ram that is provided. And they held on to that as the provision for the covering of sins. And when the high priest knew that the covenant was cut and the nation was safe to say their sins were covered for the year to come, he would leave the Holy of Holies, go into the Temple Mount and blow upon a shofar that you would hear throughout the city. You would hear the shofar echoing through. And every single person under that sound knew that if they were under that high priest, their sins were covered for the year to come. They were in a right standing with God. Do you know something? Whilst he was blowing that ram, chronologically, if you check your historical account, Jesus had just given up his life cried, it is finished, and the veil had been torn. And as the veil was torn, people heard the sound that said, your sins were covered for the year to come. But it was a picture that God was declaring from the heavenlies that our high priest was screaming out to everyone under the sound of his voice, your sins are forgiven forever. They have been removed as far as the east is from the west from you. You have no longer got a debt in your account. You have a much more hyper grace credit in your account today. Thanks so much for listening to this message today by Pastor Josh. We really trust that it blessed you. For more graceful messages like this, check out our website at www.redemptionchurch.co.za. If this message or any other message has impacted your life, we'd love to hear about it. So please email it to testimony at redemptionchurch.co.za. And remember, if you're ever in the Johannesburg area, come and visit us. We'd love to meet you.